Everybody out there, this is Ethan. And I'm Dane. And this is Chorus versus Chorus, your favorite podcast wherein your two hosts talk in depth about some broad topics related to music and then go into subtopics about those topics. And and then sometimes we fight, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we yeah, don't but... fight and we don't comment upon it. And then sometimes we go to bed angry. And that's really bad for the relationship. And then we each get little mini heart attacks. And then we wake up the next day and we forgot all about it. Anyways, I did a great job of explaining what we do. So hopefully you've listened to some episodes before and this isn't your first introduction. Think of it this way. Each episode, we have a theme and then we have a series of questions we ask. You know, what is the best example of this thing? What is the best example of that thing? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This is why I should never intro our show. It's going to be you from now on. I think you're doing beautifully. Well, thank you. That's very kind. I can talk about our theme. That's yeah. easier. Talk about our theme. Okay. So we are going to be talking about limits. Mm. Today's episode is all about limitations in music. I think it's very relevant as we continue to move into a world where there is basically no limitations to what you can talk about in a song, how you can mm-hmm. produce a song, what kind of sounds you can use and make, how long or short the song can be. How you, like, can, how you can structure the song. We've talked about yeah. that before on our show. So we're kind of taking the opposite approach and thinking about songs that have really strict limitations. Some songs that you are almost certainly familiar with some that hopefully are new to you, but all songs that you may not realize have such severe limitations, but are, I think, all the better for it. For sure. Ethan, as a musician, do you ever impose, or just as a creative person, do you ever impose Mm -hmm. limitations on yourself, like before even like uh, beginning a project? Is that something you've experimented Mm -hmm. with? Yeah, I definitely have. I generally like to take influence from a song structure or chord progression or melody that I hear and try and use that as a limitation because I do think of that as a form of limitation, right? It's like you're not just having this open sandbox and you can make whatever shapes you want. You're sort of taking a shape that's already existed and you've got to add your own ornamentation to it or your own spice to it. And I think that that can be a lot of fun. I think it's also really fun to, I know that Tom Waits is kind of famous for doing this, but like really trying to use instruments that you suck at (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, you know, be like, okay, well, I'm really bad at piano. That's my limitation, like literal, you know, skill limitation. So what can I do in this kind of box that I have? How can I be childlike and approach this as if it's this alien thing? We talked about that a bit with Nana Joa when she was on our show. She's trained in bass, but then all these other, she pushes herself to work on other instruments that she's naive at. And it kind of creates interesting things that a seasoned vet would not think to do. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. What about for you? I mean, especially as you're teaching people mm. writing, like I feel like with high schoolers, they probably are like, I want to write all the words. Yep. And you're like, eh, let's impose it's some not, limits here. 
Not quite how it works. Yeah. I often say to my creative writing students that the most interesting things happen creatively when you are backed into a corner. Yeah. When we do poetry, you know, we read existing poems and then I say like imitate the words per line and the lines per stanza of this poem and like use these devices or use this tone. I give prompts that are very limiting and specific, you know, like when we read Edward Albee's zoo story and then I tell my students to write a one act play where there are only two characters in one location and all Mm. you have is the two people's words to work with and Mm. nothing else. And that is just so rich. And one of the artists I chose who you may or may not have heard of the Beatles, um, (laughs) maybe you've heard of them and I'll get into this, but like a huge thing was like the parlor tricks that Lennon and McCartney would play where they would dream up these different limitations to put on themselves in order to Mm -hmm. like come up with new ideas. So, you know, the cliche is necessity is the Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention. Am I right? (laughs) That is exactly, uh, yeah, I think if you went into Merriam-Webster's, that's what you would find. <laughs> that's what you would find. So what made you think of this theme, Ethan? I just love examples of these kinds of songs. I feel like the social media that I consume is all about complexity in mm. music. Really intense music theory, nerding out. Jacob and, Collier and Adam Neely. Exactly. Like yeah. Exactly. Like, let's talk about augmented seventh chords and how mm-hmm. you can insert them between every other chord and passing <laughs> chords. And then it's like, no, let's talk about a song that has one chord and it's right. a banger, you know? Right. So I find it to be not only really interesting on its own, but also really interesting in the context of kind of musical maximalism. I also find it interesting because it's almost Olympian, you know, Mm. it's like Olympian athleticism to have one chord in a song and to write a song as catchy as the one that you chose. It's like an athletic feat. Or another corollary is like when um, you have a really long single take in a movie, you didn't have to do this, but you did, you impose this limitation on yourself and it's like really fun and it's really impressive. And it's, you know, especially if it's artistically of a high caliber, then it's even cooler. So, yeah. I also, one last thing before we get into the categories and the songs, I think it's also a doorway into other musical cultures the Western canon is really focused on melody and harmony and the complexity thereof. We think about Beethoven and Bach and these sort of like canonical Western composers and the idea of like, oh, their music was so rich and complex and it had this like Mm. incredible melody. And you think about other cultures where like you can have a single groove or rhythm and that is the basis of the music and whatever goes on top of it is, you know, ornamentation on top. It could be an additional groove or or rhythm. It could be a melody, a lot of African music. You think of a lot of Central and South American music, music of the Caribbean islands, like all of that is based. You can tell different genres of music based on certain rhythms and that rhythm would be consistent generally throughout an entire song. So when you think of these like limitations in in music, I think it really is this doorway to other types of musical culture that don't see musical complexity as necessarily like the end all be all. It's commentary on tradition. You and I were talking about this before we hit record about memes and how memes are just, (laughs) memes are just the folk tradition. A big unspoken challenge on Twitter is can you write something funny or compelling using the format of someone else's words? Yeah. It's just so cool. And it's cool that you bring that up because I'm also going to be talking about Indian classical music. So 
Well, we without further ado, let's get into our categories. We are going to talk about three categories of songs. The first is songs that use only one chord, songs that use only one note in the melody throughout most of most the of it. Song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then songs that use only one instrument through the entire song we put a limitation on ourselves for that third category mm. we said no like acoustic guitar or piano songs right. like something with a kind of an, an instrument yeah. that would not conventionally be solo yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so let's get into it let's start talking about that very unknown band from uh <laughs> the british isles uh yeah i am finally entering into our canon the beatles We've certainly <laughs> talked about them, some would say too much, mm. but we've never actually chosen a song by them. Did you did you know this, Ethan? I was I no, that Isn't completely that flew ridiculous. Over my head. That's funny. I think we mentioned them every episode. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, it's the Beatles. The Beatles are a band. Am I doing okay so far? So far, so good. Uh Ethan, here's a pop quiz. Hit me. There are A, one, B, four or C, 18 members of the Beatles. <laughs> it would be so good if there were 18 members of the Beatles. It was like John, Paul, oh. George, and just the drummer kept dying, like in Spinal Tap. <laughs> like in Spinal Tap. Ringo, Keith, Paul 2. <laughs> Paul Jr. Paul, Paul 3. <laughs> Nicole. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking around right now because I truly don't need to introduce the Beatles. So let's, ju- let's just dive right into it. I chose the song Tomorrow Never Knows from their 1966 album Revolver and my far and away favorite Beatles album, mm. which is not too controversial to say. Yeah, so I'm taking you to 1966 with the Beatles. The Beatlemania has been going on for three-ish years already. And the Beatles, right before Revolver, are perched in this really interesting location in their career. By the time they recorded Help, the soundtrack to their second movie, they were super burned out. This was in 1965. They were pumping out two albums a year. They had a mind-boggling number of Billboard top 10 hits. At one point, I learned this uh, recently, they had all five spots in the top five. (laughs) It's never been done since. So obviously they were really successful. They were never writing conventional songs, but like, it's interesting when you look at the trajectory of the Beatles, you know, compared to themselves later, they were writing, you know, conventional British invasion pop songs. By the time they finished Help, they were getting kind of sick of just writing love songs. If you look at their next album, which is Rubber Soul from 1965, Rubber Soul is really kind of considered by everybody as the first kind of the thing where it was different, right? Where they weren't putting out albums that were dictated by these different markets. And there's a UK album, Mm -hmm. there's a US album. Mm-hmm. Rubber Soul was created as a statement. The songs on that album had to play in the order and contain all the songs that were included. The first three songs are love songs like they had entirely written up to that point. But then the fourth song on Rubber Soul is Nowhere Man. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to, isn't he a bit like
Nowhere Man is not a love song. This is just one of those factoid things that you would never be expected to think about, but Nowhere Man is the first song they wrote that was not about love. It was hmm. about this like character and it was kind of yeah, philosophical, right? It was kind of existential. So the Beatles are beginning to sort of chafe against pumping out hits about love, pumping out teen love songs, and they wanted to start moving in a different kind of direction. By this point, George Harrison is getting interested in Indian music and Ravi Shankar's compositions on sitar, which I'll say a bit more about later. But you can hear that with Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, uh, mm. off of Rubber Soul. This is all to say that by the time they made Rubber Soul in 1965, the Beatles were getting really interested in unconventional compositions. Their first attempt at this was the song, The Word. According mm. to Paul McCartney, John and I would like to do songs with just one note, like Long Tall Sally, and we get near it in The Word. They attempted to write as close to a one chord song with the word, and it is so invisible. You know, the word is like such a breezy, Chuck Berry-ish kind of song. So yeah, you wouldn't hear that and think that they were like doing an experiment. Right, not at all. Also in the context of like a lot of their work that came after it feels pretty tame and not, right. yeah, not like right. experimental at all. Right, and it really isn't. He, as to say again, to quote Paul McCartney, he said, we got near it. With the word there's right. a lot of d7 they like that's kind of the limit there are a lot of other chords yeah but they use d7 in majority they have this in mind and then george discovers indian music so by the time in 1966 that they're making revolver which again by like most rock historians accounts is the kind of the great leap forward mm. for the beatles where they're still writing these pop structured songs but they're just like doing crazy shit on this album, mm -hmm. you know, like Eleanor Rigby is a weird song. Love You Too is where George Harrison first dips his toes into Indian classical music because he becomes obsessed with and kind of becomes a protege of Ravi Shankar. I'm going to like be a Western centric novice musicologist here and just very, very briefly and poorly describe what a raga is. If you're, you know, you're going to do it better than I, I okay. do. So to put it really simply and ridiculously simply, like there are obviously, I mean, India is a many multi-millennia old culture and in Indian classical music there are many modes of classical music and one of them is the raga ragas for american music fans i think the best comparison is that it's like jazz where a group of jazz musicians playing live will know what the chord progression is they will share that with each other and then each musician will take turns improvising on top of this set of chords that they know they're sharing 
according to Wikipedia, each raga provides the musician with a musical framework within which to improvise. Improvisation by the musician involves creating sequences of notes allowed by the raga in keeping with rules specific to the raga. It sounds a lot like jazz, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something specific to raga and a lot of Indian classical music and the, the kind of music that Ravi Shankar was playing, which really broke through to American audiences, was playing a drone because there's a component of the sitar that is constantly playing a droned chord. Yeah, there are sympathetic strings right. on the sitar that pick up vibrations. And that's where you get that kind of like a uh, typical droning note. And so George Harrison is doing this on Revolver with the song Love You Too. And he's just getting started. And Love You Too is like, it's like pop Indian music. And then he would go on on Sgt. Pepper, their next album, which is heralded as this like great leap forward for pop music, which I could, we could get into a whole podcast episode about how I don't like Sgt. Pepper, but he does (laughs) Within You Without You, which is like really not approachable for Western audiences. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's whole hog. John Lennon and Paul McCartney both were on the record as saying like, that is the best song on Sgt. Pepper. That song is a masterpiece. So that's a way of saying like Lennon and McCartney, they have this idea about a single chord. They get kind of inspired by George Harrison's obsession with Indian classical music. So that brings us to the song where John Lennon pulled it off, which is Tomorrow Never Knows. So according to Far Out Magazine, this was basically like a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was John Lennon wrote this song, which he sourced the lyrics from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which he found in like a consignment shop when they were in London. A lot of these lines are inspired by that. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not Mm -hmm. dying. But the important thing, you know, if we're going to be Western about it, it feels like world music, right? It feels Mm -hmm. like Tibetan or Indian music. And the reason for that is because Tomorrow Never Knows stays entirely on the C major chord. According to Far Out Magazine, there are no variations, no suspensions, no additional notes. Now... There's one complication to this. I don't know, Ethan, how much you have thought about this song musically, if at all. Have you? Is it a surprise to you that this is all one chord or was that very clear to you? I usually listen to harmony pretty Mm -hmm. primarily when I listen to music. Mm -hmm. So it felt familiar to me. Right. Like, I I think I wasn't surprised, but maybe I hadn't known immediately. You didn't like consciously know it. Well, So here's the thing. According to Far Out Magazine, the whole thing is in C major. It's just a C major drone like we were saying mm-hmm. like with indian raga music but then lennon sings it is not dying mm-hmm. 
And when he sings that, there's a Hammond organ playing. The whole song is still in C major, but Lennon's vocal creates this almost auditory illusion where it highlights a B flat major. So according to this article, Lennon's vocal line highlights the B flat major to the extent that the chord has to be considered a B flat major over C chord, thereby ruining the pipe dream of recording a song with only one chord. Now, I know how you feel about this stuff where it's like, it's just, it's fun to talk about this stuff. And then when someone on Reddit is like, actually, it's a B flat major over Mm -hmm. C chord technically. So we'll just abandon all that and (laughs) and say that for all intents and purposes, Tomorrow Never Knows is only one chord. Works for me. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. Oh, it's pretty beautiful for being a terrifying song. It is. It's just yeah. it's just an incredible work of art and there's nothing to say about it. So that's my choice. Well, let's talk about another incredible work of art that's on the opposite end of terrifying to <laughs> very goofy. Although this artist uh, in his personal life was terrifying in a lot of ways. <laughs> True. I won't get into that, but I will give some background on him. I, I think his story is really interesting as well. So I am talking about the one and only Harry Nelson and the song Coconut, which I feel like everybody knows this song, but maybe nobody knows this song. So let me give a little background on Harry Nelson. He is originally from Brooklyn and he moved to LA when he was a teenager to get out of his family's poor financial situation, just kind of wanted to leave home. And he was actually working as a computer programmer at a bank and he became interested in musical musical composition, just started to write songs I feel like this is like the weird Cinderella story of like everybody in LA in the 60s. He became really successful and sold some of his songs to artists like the Monkees. He was doing just fine. And then in 1967, he debuted on the RCA label with the LP Pandemonium Shadow Show, followed by a bunch of weird releases, which included a collaboration with Randy Newman, of all people. He did this original children's story called The Point. That makes he sense ended to up, me. He ended up creating the EP I mentioned, Pandemonium Shadow Show. He ended up creating what is referred to as the first remix album, which was called Aerial Pandemonium Ballet. And that came out in 1971. So you could credit Harry Nelson with that. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one But Harry Nilsson became this songwriting savant just made such a really insane mixture of songs and styles and this album which also is probably the best titled album ever Nilsson Schmilson It's so good 
so many uh, other like... people do like parodies of that title too yeah. it's, you know but he was he was the original jokester i feel like this album is a perfect encapsulation of the kind of stuff that he was capable of doing you have songs that are really all over the map you have a song like without you which is this like unbelievably gorgeous ballad And then you have a song like Gotta Get Up, which people probably know from the Netflix show Russian Doll. And then you have a song like Coconut. This song is one of his most commercially successful songs, but is a complete joke. It's like a proto-Bohemian Rhapsody almost. It's like musical theater, you know? It is. It is very theatrical. It is kind of queen in that sense, but it's sort of like a play on sea shanties. It has a kind of like Caribbean flavor to it. Obviously, it's just this guy fucking around in his studio trying to make something goofy. Something that you listening to this song may not realize, but the entire song is just one chord. It all is centered around not just a C chord like the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows, but actually a C seven chord and just really quickly like on a musical note this is pretty interesting because a seventh chord which is a chord that has an added note that seventh note which adds some tension is a very what we would call in musical terminology is a very unstable chord it really wants to resolve and so if you were going to go by the traditional rules of music theory you would want to resolve this to an f major chord but this chord never resolves. See, this whole song is kind of on this weird little knife edge. And it mm. I think it's one of the reasons why this song has so much sticking power and why it's very catchy. just kind of lives on this like a little weird seventh chord and just pulls it along makes you forget the tension too because it eventually explodes even though that's wild to me that it's still staying on a on the same chord even when it explodes but it's so still so cathartic so it almost doesn't matter good song i love this song if you were like oh i think this song is fun and goofy and interesting and you i want to listen to more harry nelson you could listen to the rest of this album not find anything like it so you know good luck to you but that's one of the joys of listening to his music it's just completely all over the place i will say if you want more goofy weird coconut ish his (laughs) album son of schmilson 
has mm. some has some weird shit on it. Yeah. I would also recommend anyone who has a passing interest in Harry Nilsson to watch the documentary they made about him maybe like 10 years ago. Who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody talking about him? To me, Harry Nilsson never never cemented his legacy because he was too personally self-destructive and he also just didn't give a shit enough. Like he did whatever he wanted. And it vexed his managers and agents. His manager and producers were like, can you please write more songs like Gotta Get Up, please? Give us a whole album of that. And he's like, no, I want to direct a choir of geriatric old folks home residents in a song about how I don't want to wet my bed. He just would do shit like that. He just, he followed his muse too much to become like a John Lennon type. And he was also just not around enough because he just Mm. tragically, you know, drove himself off a cliff metaphorically. But the song is amazing. It's just such a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say the Harry Nelson song because the Beatles are lame and everybody knows who they are. Um, Don't you want to like, I mean, they've been so historically underrated that maybe like if they get a little award from our show, would that even things out? It might put them over the top. Yeah. Uh, let's give it to them. Let's split the points. I'll, I'll give it to Coconut. That's fair. Yeah. Let's get to the next one. What's the second category, Ethan? We are talking about songs that have a single note melody. So admittedly, the entire song that I have chosen does not only have one note in the melody, but... I would argue the power of this song comes from a stained one-note melody. A stained? And I would... Sustained. Stained, oh, a... not stained. The <laughs> like band. the band stained. A sustained one-note melody. Yes, okay. that runs for a, a nice long portion of the song. I also would say that this song is a bit of a Mandela effect musically. Huh. Because I think in my mind, when I was, when I was, so I was trying to figure out songs that have one note and melody, you know, doing a little research and this came up and I was like, that's not true. This melody goes like this. And then I listened to the song and I was like, that is one note. Mm -hmm. So no more holding your breath. The song I chose is Mr. Brightside by the Killers. What part of the melody is one note? It is the verse. The very first thing that you hear Bryn Flowers singing is all one note. Again, in my mind, I was thinking, Pulling out of my cage and I've been doing just fine. Gotta, gotta be done. Da, 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 da. Like You're following like the chord progression. Right? Like there's something yeah. going on. It's going up. It's going down. No. If you listen to the song, it's almost as if he's speaking it more than mm-hmm. singing it. It's a little rapish. A little rapish, but it is all a single note. So I want to talk a little bit about the band and then I want to get into the song because I think it's really interesting. They are, it's got to be like the only good band from Las Vegas, right? What other good Probably. bands are out of Las Vegas? That's it. That's uh, the one. <laughs> that is literally the one. So Brandon Flowers is the lead singer and the kind of leader of the band. <laughs> Apparently, they're originally a synth pop band, but then 
Brandon Flowers went to an Oasis concert and was like, I want to play rock music with guitar. <laughs> so that, that changed things up. And they were joined by guitarist Dave Kuning of the lovely Pella, Iowa, wow. which we know and love. And the first song they ever wrote together was Mr. Brightside. No so, way. Yeah. First That's song amazing. So apparently it turns out that Dave Kuning, the guitarist, he composed the music for the song before he ever met Brandon Flowers. And then they were kind of like, yeah, what do you have? Let's jam. What's going on? And Dave Kuning was like, oh, I've got this thing. So Brandon Flowers heard it, started writing lyrics and just like went into the studio and started working on stuff. Brandon Flowers basically says that they made the song like in a day and huh. they did it really quickly because they only had one verse. They were sort of like on a roll in a sense. They were like, yeah, we went, we made these demos like really quickly after we wrote the song because we were getting a bunch of buzz and, you know, we didn't end up writing a second verse because we just couldn't think of any other lines in time. So we just kind of repeated it, <laughs> just an interesting way to solve that problem. So the reason I wanted to highlight this song is because, yes, there isn't a single note throughout the entire song in the melody, but the contrast between the verse and the rest of the song makes the movement of the melody later in the song so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. It's as if you move from the static image to like suddenly things are moving around and things are changing and it, it draws that contrast out a lot better. So I think it's a really cool example of being constrained, keeping that one note, and then using that as kind of a launching off point for some powerful stuff later in the song. Yeah. yeah. And really, in my head right now, I would have to listen to it again. But the chorus, when it does start incorporating other notes, there are, though, a lot of repeated notes as well. So Definitely. it's not totally abandoning the limitation. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. sort of like slowly adding in notes as you go there. I used to do this exercise uh, in my jazz improv class when I was in high school, where our teacher would make us have a chord progression going on and everybody in the class would be vamping on the chord progression. A raga, if you will. A raga, if you will. And the limitation was for the first 30 seconds of your solo, you can only play one note mm. and then you can play two notes and then uh -huh. you can play three notes. And so once you start to get to four to five notes, you're like, oh my God, I don't even, I've got too many options here. I can right. do anything. <laughs> right. And I just love that concept. And I think that's basically what they kind of did in this song a little bit. My choice is One Note Samba as performed by Dean Martin and Katerina Valente on the Dean Martin show. So a bit of background on this, and I'm actually, I've, I've listeners, don't worry, I'm not springing this on Ethan. I checked with him beforehand. He's going to give me a kind of like music theory assist here on like what's going on in the song. Real quick, uh, a little bit about the performers. So 
first of all, if you're listening to this, you're hearing, I'm going to put in clips and stuff, but I highly recommend you just go to YouTube and watch this because 75% of the effect of it is them kind of flirting with each other and doing this comedy routine between each other. And it's so charming. It's very charming. You sing with me? I can do that. What do you have in mind? Well, uh, how about a uh, bossa nova? Bossa nova. Nova? Bossa nova. It It's is, easy. It is easy? Oh, it is very easy. It is easy for me? It is easy for you. What do I do here? Nice Dean Martin. He was a member of the Rat Pack, a singer, an actor, a comedian. He was extremely good at all three of those things. He was world-class at all those things. I've been thinking, as a quick side note, I've been thinking about that lately. Back then, in the 30s and 40s, to be famous, you had to be good at five things. Mm-hmm. Now, to be famous, you can be good at zero things. It's kind of <laughs> crazy. Uh, a little bit quickly about his background, because it's pretty interesting. So he was born in Ohio. His name was Dino Paul Crocetti, but then he sort of stripped the Italianness out of his name for showbiz. Uh, he was born in Steubenville, Ohio. His father was a, an immigrant barber, and he actually mm-hmm. spoke only Italian until the age of five. He dropped out of school, got a job in a steel mill. This is all according to All Music Guide, of course. And then he also boxed a little bit. His name was Kid Crochet, and he was an amateur boxer. He delivered bootleg liquor, and then Mm. he became a croupier in a speakeasy. So, you know, this would have been in about the 30s. And that's when he started getting in with the mob. And as we all know, the Rat Pack guys, you know, we don't talk about that. They may be a little connected. You know what I mean? Hey, you could say. So he's kind of struggling. He's putting out singles that don't do that well but then he meets his his soulmate jerry lewis yes that jerry lewis the patron saint of french comedy apparently (laughs) they met each other they began performing together in atlantic city and according to all music within months their salaries rocketed from 350 to five thousand dollars a week and by the end of the 40s, they were the most popular comedy duo in the nation. Now we could fill out. I would take that. I would take that. Even now, yeah. Before, yeah. yeah. Before, or after inflation. We could fill out a whole podcast episode about the saga of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. They came to hate each other and they were like a famous feuding duo. And then they very famously like made up during a telethon and stuff like that. Um, that's Dean Martin. And the clip I have here is from his show on NBC. It was a variety show. The Dean Martin show started in 1965, went until 1974. And like I was saying, like, if you were going to be famous back then, you had to have it all. And Dean Martin had it all. And then Caterina Valente is a French Italian singer. She is a polyglot. She was able to speak six languages and two of them are on display in this song. She can sing in Brazilian Portuguese and speak in Let me talk a bit about the the song itself. So a bit of context. In the 60s, there was major American interest in bossa nova and samba, which is basically the national music of Brazil, which, by the way, we talk about Brazilian music a lot, too, on this show. We're fans of the Beatles, Nine Inch Nails and Brazilian music on course. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. But yeah, there's this kind of weird 
breakthrough where songs from Brazil were breaking through onto the pop charts in America. As an example, Vincent Guaraldi, the guy who wrote all the songs for Peanuts, you know, like Linus and Lucy. Mm, Yeah. He scored a huge hit with Cast Your Fate to the Wind, which is a folk samba song in 1962. Mm. Because of the success of this film, Black Orpheus, which is a French art film that took place in Brazil. In the 60s, there's just this bossa nova fever, kind of like how during the era of the Macarena, for all of our Gen Z listeners who don't know what that is, uh, there was this weird time when just like all white bread suburban Americans were super into Latin music, you know? Yep. So this song, One Note Samba or Samba de Samba G Uma Nota Sol is by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Do you know what famous song he wrote, Ethan? Girl from Ipanema? He did. Good job. I'm proud of you. I'm telling you, I've been listening to a lot of Brazilian music lately. I got to know my stuff. That's rad. So this guy wrote Girl from Ipanema, which is arguably, it's it's up there as like one of the most famous songs from Brazil, period. It it peaked on the Hot 100 at five, number five. So it did very well in the American pop music landscape. He wrote One Note Samba, and One Note Samba has become a jazz standard. If you look at the Wikipedia for it, it has hundreds of covers. As sung by Dean Martin and Caterina Valente, she's actually singing it in Portuguese, but I'm going to read you really quickly a sample of the lyrics from the song. To note, again, this is a one-note song. What do I do here? Is it nice and easy? Yes, you only sing one note. What note I sing? You want some chewing gum, Yanni? <laughs> e flat. E flat? E flat. All right, lay it on me here. Ba. 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 The song is not actually one note. There are other notes, but as I'm going to throw it to Ethan in a bit, he's going to kind of explain what the song's doing musically. But the song is in the key of G. This is just a little samba built upon a single note. Other notes are bound to follow, but the root is still that note. Now this new one is the consequence of the one we've just been through, as I'm bound to be the unavoidable consequence of you. This is unbearably clever. (laughs) And and the whole thing is just a masterpiece of playfulness in terms of writing a love song while commenting in a really accessible way on these kind of music theory concepts. My perception of it as a musical simpleton is that say in this version the song that dean is being exhorted to sing it keeps popping up at the end of every measure and the thing is that the note sounds different each time because it's being recontextualized by the chords by the different chords Ah. 
I don't know why you thought you needed to throw it to me for further explanation, because <laughs> that's entirely accurate. I mean, this is the cool thing about harmony is that you can have that same note do different things in all of those different contexts. It's sort of like if you have a blue tie or a blue shirt, it looks one way when you wear it with green pants and mm-hmm. it looks another way when you wear it with brown pants. Right. And depending on what feeling or contrast or thing you want to elicit, you want to switch it up. So in mm-hmm. the same way, that single note is doing different things and giving you a different feeling in the context of these chords that are kind of swirling around it. And that's why it feels very dynamic, even though it is literally one note the whole time. Yeah. Right. You sang ba. ba. Great. Ready for the big finish? Oh, you can yeah. bet your sweet cheeks. <laughs> Ooh, come on. I'll do that. Okay, it is all right. And again, if you go and you read the lyrics, he's commenting on how the note is moving around and he's making it this metaphor. So I came back to my first note as I must come back to you. I will pour into that one note all the love I feel for you. It's just, it's just such a masterpiece. It's so good. Yeah, it's just a perfect little, little song. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, such a good tune. So good. So, so I don't like the killers. I never have. So give me the point. You've got it. Easy Thanks. enough. <laughs> Wait, were you, have you, have you like, I want to ask, are you, or have you ever been, I'm Senator McCarthy, are you, or have you ever been a fan of the killers or do you just like appreciate their hits? I just appreciate their hits. Yeah. I'm not like, yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to go to bat for them. No, I don't really have that much stake in it. But the, the way you explain the, the way that that song achieves catharsis, I, I really appreciate that. And it makes me appreciate the song more. So nice. love you, Ethan. Love you. Oh, my God. Love you. Love you. All right. It's one to one. It's one to one. We're going into the final category, which is one instrument song. One instrument Dane, song. Take it away with yours, because this is a great one. Sure. I have a little bit of autobiography from both. <laughs> me and Ethan. Oh, yeah. um, my choice. Okay. So again, to remind our listeners, Ethan and I put a limitation on ourselves here. One, a song that features only one instrument, but we, we said it cannot be any instrument that is like conventionally on its own. So like an acoustic guitar, piano, stuff like that. My song is Prim written by the Icelandic composer Askel Mason, but performed by Evelyn Glennie be specific dame evelyn glennie she is scottish she has been knighted and the one instrument that is used on this song is a snare drum yeah a little bit about how ethan and i first heard this song a little bit about evelyn glennie and then just a little bit about my own personal reaction to it uh ethan and i learned about this artist and heard this song performed live at our college grinnell college in iowa GC Pride. Whoop, whoop. Let's go. She performed in a concert hall. I learned about the concert because I had been taking drum lessons from this gifted jazz drummer. So we went to see her. She did sort of the thing that a lot of people who perform music at colleges do. Like they give a bit of an academic talk and then perform as well. Then she introduced this composition called Prim. And she went over to Snare Drum. And for... 12 minutes, 
she performed a solo on a snare drum. If that sounds to you really boring, I assure you it was not. It was yeah. to this day. I don't know how you feel about it, Ethan. It's one of the most moving things I've ever experienced. Just like hypnotic. It was utterly hypnotic. For those who don't know or who are not drummers, you know, there is quite a lot you can do in terms of your control of the sticks with your fingers, with your wrists how you're flicking them, yeah. the angle at which you're hitting the surface. She was working a lot with that on the snare drum. And also amazingly, she was playing harmonics on yeah. the snare drum and creating so cool. these overlapping tones in the way that she like rubbed the drumstick against the skin of the drum. It was spellbinding. So cool. It's so cool. And I recommend that you sit down, if you're interested in this to our listeners, sit down and just listen to the whole, the whole composition. Now, as if that wasn't amazing enough, and I'm going to kind of do something that Dame Evelyn Glennie kind of wishes I would not, but I, I have to say it. Uh, she is deaf and she is not only deaf, she is profoundly deaf. And for those who don't know... What that means, there are five categories of deafness. They range from mild to moderate to moderate severe to severe to profound, meaning that if you are profoundly deaf, you can not hear anything greater than 90 decibels. So she is profoundly deaf and she actually wrote this essay called Hearing Essay. I'll post it in the show description. And here's what Evelyn Glennie has to say about her deafness and about the way that it's kind of like a PR hook that she is deaf and that she plays drums. She says, I hope that the audience will be stimulated what I have to say through the language of music and will therefore leave the concert hall feeling entertained. If the audience is instead only wondering how a deaf musician can play percussion, then I have failed as a musician. She goes on to talk about how she doesn't put in any of her promotional material that she is deaf because she doesn't want that to be the emphasis. And for those wondering, and I'm going to, I'm going to read kind of a, a, a slightly larger chunk of what she wrote, just because I think it's so important to quote exactly what she said. Evelyn Glennie plays her drum compositions on stage barefoot so that she can yeah. better feel the vibrations of the drumming on her feet. But something interesting about that that she says in this essay, she says, deafness is poorly understood in general. For instance, there is a common misconception that deaf people live in a world of silence. To understand the nature of deafness, first, one has to understand the nature of hearing. Hearing is basically a specialized form of touch. Mm. Sound is simply vibrating air, which the ear picks up and converts to electrical signals which are then interpreted by the brain. The sense of hearing is not the only sense that can do this. Touch can do this too. For some reason, we tend to make a distinction between hearing a sound and feeling a vibration. In reality, they are the same thing. Yeah, she goes on to say, really at, it's super interesting. 
She goes on to say at the end of the essay, for me, my deafness is no more important than the fact I am female with brown eyes. Sure, I sometimes have to find solutions to problems related to my hearing and music, but so do all musicians. So I find this all very interesting. I feel kind of bad that I'm you know, devoting a chunk of time to discussing this, but I think that the composition I chose, Prim, and the way that she makes you... I think this is very appropriate for the way that through this composition with this snare drum makes you hear something and feel something in a way that you never thought possible before. She completely Mm -hmm. recontextualizes this instrument that you thought was only made to do one thing. Mm. She shows you that there is an entire world of vibration and of sensory stimuli that we are sometimes blocked from understanding. And when Ethan and I saw this performed, you know, I think it was moving for many reasons, but one of the reasons it was so emotionally moving was because it made you sort of come to that realization. So she's an amazing musician. This composition is incredible. And it's just one of those things that if you are lucky enough to see it, you never forget it for the rest of your life. Yeah. All right. Nice. Well, Take let us me home. round. Yeah. Let me round things off. I'm going to talk about the one and only artist that you probably hate for a reason you don't realize but mm-hmm. one and only bobby mcferrin and i'm going to talk about the song thinking about your body mm-hmm. so bobby mcferrin is a singer born in manhattan son of two singers a baritone named robert mcferrin and a singer named sarah cooper and they're both incredibly respected in their fields right yeah Yeah. I mean, and just for somebody to be this good at singing, like you have to come from that back. I just can't just pop into existence. Right. You probably hate Bobby McFerrin (laughs) a little bit because he created the song Don't Worry, Be Happy. Be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. You know, if you were of our generation alive in the uh, early 2000s, late 90s, you know the big mouth Billy Bass singing it, (laughs) or you just heard it on the radio when it came out and think, oh my God, I wish you had never mentioned that song so I could never think about it again. But Mm -hmm. that song is really interesting. It's a completely acapella track that Bobby McFerrin put together. It's totally iconic. It also was co-opted by George H.W. Bush. And subsequently, uh, and of course, without permission from Bobby McFerrin, who said, I'm absolutely not going to be voting for George H.W. Bush. And then he stopped performing it live because he was like, I don't want this to be associated with me. I'm sure for Um, other reasons, he stopped performing it live as well. I'm sure it was the bane of his existence. (laughs) Although I'm sure he bought him a nice house in Long Island. (laughs) Yeah, he did all right for himself. But um, his career is really interesting, too. He didn't come out with his first album until he was already 30. And before that, he spent six years trying to kind of hone in on his style. During two of those years, he did not listen to any other singers at all, Hmm. just to try and avoid like picking up other habits or kind of trying to sound like other singers. Anyway, 1982, he puts out his self-titled album. And then in 1984, he had been really inspired by Keith Jarrett, who was a pianist who had a a lot of success with some solo piano concerts. And he wanted to do something similar for 
the voice and only somebody who is as good as Bobby McFerrin can pull this off. So in 1984, he releases The Voice, which is the first album by a jazz singer to be recorded entirely without accompaniment, without overdubbing. It is just his voice, hence the name of the album. And this song that I chose is a song from the live concert recording of the album. And the reason I wanted to highlight this is I keep talking about how amazing he is as a singer. This is... It doesn't sound maybe initially like it's anything too extraordinary, but what he's able to do is modulate from very high notes to very low notes and also modulate the way in which he's using his voice. So it goes from his falsetto to his very deep bass voice to his chest voice and back and forth, and it's all completely seamless. And he does a little bit of throat singing too, like he can drone, right? Yeah. He's able to do so much with his voice. And it's also the accuracy with which he arrives at the different pitches is really remarkable. And I remember I had this period where I was obsessed with Bobby McFerrin. And I just watched as many videos as I could. He has a really cool video where he was invited to a neuroscience conference. He has the audience basically just go along with him and sing the pentatonic scale. And he's like, and you know, they don't really know what they're getting in for, but he gets this entire audience full room full of people to start singing this pentatonic scale with just him kind of guiding them by moving around the stage. And he has this really beautiful performance. And then he stops and he says, anywhere I've been to in the world, doesn't matter where I am, people do that. It's just intuited. Hmm. Just like, man, that's really cool. That's really but cool. The video that I think is the coolest about him is he was interviewed by, I think it was like Beatbox TV or something. And he's like, look, I don't really beatbox, but I can talk to you about singing. And they're like, sure, talk to us about that. And he said, the way I got really good at singing is I do intervallic exercises, which is to say he sings a fifth, the distance between like, let's say a C on the piano and a G. And then he'll go up by half step, so C sharp and a G sharp. And he proceeds mm. to demonstrate this by just completely, like not even thinking about it. <laughs> he just says, yeah, yeah, I do these intervals and I go up by half steps. And, da, 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 da. and then I do these intervals and I go down by half steps or down by. And he just is, he is like a human piano. He yeah. can just hit any note at any interval, any octave seamlessly. I probably sang a lot of scales. And I did a lot of things to get my intonation together. You know, singing octaves, singing, you know, intervals of tense. You know, just lots of different exercises. And then I use breathing as a percussive device lots of times. You know, like, see. You know, so I can inhale and, but I use it, you know, in a musical way. And this 
song is just the perfect example of it for me. And it's funky as hell too. So I love it. I have two pieces of trivia I want to share about him and one thought. Hit me. Well, first of all, I remember you showed me this in college and it's amazing. Mm. I don't really have much to say about it. It's just so good. One piece of trivia is, have you ever seen the music video for Don't Worry, Be Happy? (laughs) It features Robin Williams. I'm not surprised. That yeah, feels no, like it's not surprising. It's, it's very 80s. Yeah. Second piece of trivia that this is just a factoid that tickles me. Bobby McFerrin is the platonic ideal of the one hit wonder because literally all of his other singles have not charted. Good job, Bobby. He had a number one hit and then every single thing else that he put out did not chart. So I find that to be kind of impressive in its own way. So funny. I mean, what's interesting, though, is he sort of became like a more of an educator. Right. So he does a lot of like speaking, kind of like TED Talks, but with music and goes around the world and goes to Mm -hmm. choir choral events. And yeah, it's just it's really fascinating to see. I mean, again, if you go on YouTube and just search for Bobby McFerrin, like most of the stuff that comes up is him doing public speaking. So He did all right for himself, despite just being the ultimate one hit wonder. I mean, that what you just said is one way of getting to my my one thought on him, which is that like, I think the immediate and kind of incorrect thing to think about him is that he like signed a devil's bargain, you know, Mm -hmm. that he became very rich from this very popular song that basically everybody except children hate, but he didn't. Because he put out a song that is very famous. He made a lot of money off of it. And now he's this, like you're saying, he's this luminary. He's incredibly respected in the jazz industry and in the jazz field. And anyone who takes more than 10 minutes to kind of learn about him would very quickly realize that he is an alien in terms of his, in terms of his gifts. So. Nice. Uh, that's got to be a tie. I think so. Yeah. Very impressive yeah. in different directions. Very impressive. So do we want to leave our listeners with any any uh, thoughts on, on how they can incorporate limitations into their lives? Like, you know, if you're like a teacher like me, throw a little limitations into your life. Like only teach uh, on one leg for a day. See yeah. how it feels. If you're like um, Ethan and, you know, you're filling out a spreadsheet, like... <laughs> Only go in the in the A column and don't yeah. fill out any of the other columns. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I, I would say just don't don't work more than one day a week. Uh, I like that limitation. Eat one meal a day. Yes. Only listen to one podcast in your life. Is it? Uh, you should probably just listen to the Bloomberg podcast. I think it's probably <laughs> pretty good. No, it's chorus versus chorus. And hey. if you liked the songs that we were talking about today, check out the official chorus versus chorus Spotify playlist. There are a couple of songs that we talked about today that necessitate YouTube links. So if you want to look at those after we've been kind of hyping them up, just click on the link in the show description. It'll bring you right to YouTube. And uh, until next time, we love you all. That's it. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.